We're going to read all that tonight. Not the hymnal. Got to read this one first. Then we're going to read that one. Right there. Going to have a little journal reading over there. <laughs> well, we sure look different from the uh, assemblies folk walking around. Yeah, I'm lugging my briefcase to <laughs> meeting, and they're skipping and singing. <laughs> Well, no, I've been reading Covenant Theology, and <laughs> I've been uh, smiling. I hear about the Gospel a lot in Covenant Theology. Children, we've been learning about the law lately, in the last hour, and we need to uh, continue that. So you're right in the middle of some uh, big discussion here, so you're going to have to just uh, catch what you can. Let's begin our time of prayer. Father, we do pray that you will help us to understand anew and afresh your word, that it may sink into our hearts, that we may follow you more joyously and also with greater zeal to holiness and to that uh, love for you which demonstrates it in love for one another and in uh, acts of kindness and charity toward our neighbor. We do pray that you will bless us in this hour to open your word to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To remind you where we were, we were talking about the Mosaic Covenant. I had opened by reading several places in Paul in particular where the Mosaic Covenant was portrayed for us as a really a recapitulation of the Adamic covenant. A way to think about that in our older terminology is a republication of the Adamic covenant. One way you could think of this is what is the law except the demand of God, the condition of utter holiness before him. To be in fellowship with God, you must be holy. And what defines our holiness if not the law? Now, one thing uh, that our theologians have done is pointed out that the summary of the law is very important to think about in this connection. How do we summarize the law? How, is, how did Jesus summarize the Mosaic law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, isn't that the heart of what Adam also had to obey. Particularly the first summary, to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to follow him in all of his ways and not break any of his commandments. So in a sense, the Mosaic law picks up what Adam was to obey as well. And so our theologians have seen that connection also reading Paul where he says that the Mosaic law is a ministry of condemnation, a ministry of death, of threatening. When in Galatians 3, Paul presents the law as something added to the, to the Abrahamic covenant of grace and, and says that as a principle, it is a principle of law-keeping, of works, 
contrasts it with the principle of grace. It makes it seem like it's a covenant of works. And yet I also showed how it is a ministry, a, uh, an advance on the covenant of grace. It is at heart a covenant of grace because no one after Adam's fall can keep the law perfectly. And even if you could start out now afresh, there's no room in a law covenant for forgiveness of your past sins. But even if you were born today, you would be born under the condemnation that comes to you by being a son or a daughter of Adam. So you see, a law covenant cannot be issued which can bring life. And that's what Paul says also. No law can be issued which can bring life. So how do we deal with this uh, blending of these two principles in the Mosaic Covenant? It appears like the Mosaic Covenant is a mixed covenant, a covenant with a law element and a covenant of works element and a covenant of grace element, particularly uh, for individuals. And I think one way to, to, uh, to, to untangle the spaghetti, no comment on tonight's dinner, but to untangle the uh, spaghetti that is possible in your mind over these things is to think, first of all, think about individuals who relate to God in these covenantal administrations, but also think of the church as a corporate entity. Don't only think individually. Don't only think of how would an individual believer relate to God in that era, but what is God doing for the church as a whole? What is the corporate assembly of, the, of Israel? How are they relating to God, and what is God doing with them as a corporate people? Because this is part of the answer. Now, I'd like to read for you a, an answer given by one of our theologians. I hope this isn't too long for you, but it really is an important and a very rich passage this is Francis Turretin in his second volume of his Institutes of Electic Theology. Turretin was the uh, successor of Calvin in Geneva. He was the head of the Academy of Geneva, the school that Calvin uh, started. Uh, and he was a, uh, a very prominent Reformed theologian. His, uh, this book actually was uh, in Latin, a required textbook at Old Princeton under Charles Hodge and some of our fine theologians were nourished on this. So let me uh, read this paragraph, though, where he's dealing with this particular issue of how does the Mosaic Covenant relate both as a law covenant and as a, a grace covenant. Here's what he says. Meanwhile, it pleased God to administer the covenant of grace in this period of the Mosaic period under a rigid legal economy both on account of the condition of the people still in infancy and on account of the putting off of the advent of Christ and the satisfaction to be rendered by him. A twofold relation ought always to obtain, the one legal, more severe, through which by a new promulgation of the law and of the covenant of works, with an intolerable yoke of ceremonies, he wished to set forth what men owed and what was to be expected by them on account of duty unperformed. In this respect, the law is called the letter that kills, 2 Corinthians 3.6, and the handwriting which was contrary to us, Colossians 2.14. 
because by it men profess themselves guilty, guilty and children of death, the declaration being written by their own blood in circumcision and by the blood of victims. The other relation was evangelical, sweeter, inasmuch as, quote, the law was a schoolmaster unto Christ, Galatians 3.24, and contained, quote, the shadow of things to come, Hebrews 10.1, whose body and express image is in Christ. Hence, as much of trouble and vexation as that economy brought in its former relation, so much of consolation and of, and of joy it conferred and the latter upon pious men attending to it and seeking under that bark and veil the spiritual and evangelical truth which the Holy Spirit taught them by a clearer revelation. God supplied more and greater helps according to the time, not only by promises and oracles often repeated, but also by more expressive types and more perfect shadows and figures in which they had a more exact delineation of the thing itself and a more accurate picture of Christ crucified before their eyes as it were in types. According to that twofold relation, the administration can be viewed either as to the external economy of legal teaching or as to the internal truth of the gospel promise lying under it. The matter of that external economy was the threefold law, moral, ceremonial, and forensic. The first was fundamental, the remaining appendices of it. The form was the pact added to that external dispensation which on the part of God was the promise of the land of Canaan and of rest and happiness in it and under the image of each of heaven and the rest in him, Hebrews 4, 3 and 9, or of eternal life according to the clause, do this and you will live. Well, I'll stop there. But notice what he says, really quite boldly perhaps, if you haven't heard this before, he says that in one relation... The law of Moses was a new promulgation of the law and of the covenant of works. Our older theologians called this the republication of the covenant of works in the Mosaic epoch. You see, because the Mosaic law embraced that, that important principle of the law covenant, of the covenant of works. And what is the central principle? You do this and you will live by it. The one who would live by law-keeping must personally obey to the letter. And that is what Moses embodied in part. But also he points out the other relationship, the relationship of the gospel. Now we talked about this earlier this morning, so I won't repeat all that we talked about, but particularly focusing on the sacrificial system, their grace was offered. And in fact, the whole law was given because of the priesthood, which communicated to the people of God that there was forgiveness with God, that he was still administering grace, and that the priesthood of Abraham was continued for the people of God in Levi, pointing, of course, as we find out later on, to a greater priest to come of a different order, whose priesthood would never end. And so you see, in a sense, there is this legal element. But how does it function? First of all, I'd like you to, to think about how, before we really launch into the specifics of that, I'd like you to think about, well, how does the Adamic covenant still function? 
How is the Adamic covenant relevant throughout all eras? First of all, Adam's covenant is still relevant to all of us every day, isn't it? Death. Death comes to us because of the curse on Adam, because of his rebellion, physical death. And death to all those who do not claim the covenant God of the scripture as their God. Secondly, there's a common curse upon the the earth. The book of Ecclesiastes reflects upon this, about the frustration of labor. The thing about the scripture you have to appreciate, and this is one thing that really did attract me to Christianity, frankly, when I was uh, being converted in my 20s, was that I read the book of Ecclesiastes. And I thought, you know, God isn't playing around. He knows. He knows what real life is like. You read Ecclesiastes and you see that God knows what, he, you know, what the human condition is and what life on earth is like. It's not just all a fairy tale you know, or a fairy story. Christianity isn't like a Disney portrayal of, of uh, everything being uh, wonderful and sweet. Certainly there is great sweetness that I found out about after I was converted that I didn't know about. Great joy and, and, uh, uh, and love toward God and from God. But Ecclesiastes shows that we still are laboring under this curse upon the land and our wisdom and our labor can't overcome it. Those are the two great themes of Ecclesiastes. Uh, wisdom and work and how they can't overcome and reverse the curse and in the end, the, the punchline of Ecclesiastes is fear God. That is the only hope. There's no other hope. Even our best attempts through our wisdom and our working hard cannot reverse God's curse. But hope in God. And in that place in Revelation, you see, they still were looking ahead to a time when that deliverance would be clearer to them. Well, a third way in which the Adamic covenant still has effect for us is the creation ordinances. The Sabbath is still relevant as long as this earth endures. The Sabbath is built into creation. God gave it to us and to all people throughout all of this earth's history as a sign of that eternal rest he holds forth as a promise by his grace. And we now in Christianity, of course, we celebrate the Lord's Day, our Sabbath, on Sunday as a sign that our hope is fixed on that rest that the Lord Jesus has inaugurated by his resurrection. And as Lord of the Sabbath, of course, he has made it for us as a day of joy and rest and hope. Secondly, also there's the creation ordinance of work, government in the world, working in the world. And we're commanded to do this as Christians, to be involved in the world. We live here. We're to love our neighbor. And the implications of that are to be involved with with the lives of our neighbor and to uh, work for improvement as we share the gospel for justice and for uh, sharing the goodness of God with them uh, emulating our father who sends his reign upon the just as well as the unjust thirdly marriage the coming of Christ you know he, he revealed that in heaven marriage will be uh, no more as we know it will be like the angels I don't exactly know what that will be like but uh, we'll be like the angels if that's any help to you 
uh, when I meet one, I'll ask him what it's like, you know. But we'll be like the angels. But until then, you see, even though we live in this day after Christ's coming, marriage endures as a creation ordinance. And it is to be uh, held in honor. And it is to be uh, practiced with great sanctity, as well as as a gift from God in great gratitude. Jesus appeals to Genesis 1 and the, as a creation ordinance, still in effect in his day, to define marriage as well as divorce. So we see that Adam's covenant and the issues there are still, in, still uh, operating in the world. God is still revealing his person in general revelation, this we read in Romans 1 through 3. Uh, he still reveals himself through creation. Uh, notice how in Romans 1, 18 and following, that very important passage I know you've read, that God reveals himself. He actively is involved in revealing himself. God shows his power. He shows himself in the world. And specifically, we saw in Isaiah 24 earlier this week how the eternal covenant is the basis for the last judgment. And that eternal covenant is the covenant with Adam, in my opinion. There's an eternal covenant that is always binding, always, always the basis of God's judgment, and that is the demands of God revealed in creation. Now let me read a passage for you to, uh, from another of our theologians just to uh, illustrate this principle of how the works covenant of Adam is still in effect in a way, though not upon Christians for salvation. Let me read this to you from Thomas Watson. Whosoever they are that look for righteousness and salvation by the power of their free will or the inherent goodness of their nature or the virtue of their merit as the Socinians and the Papists, they are all under the covenant of works. They do not submit to the righteousness of faith. Therefore, they are bound to keep the whole law. And in case of failure, they are condemned. The covenant of works is still in force for all those who would reject the righteousness of Christ. And that's what Paul says in Romans 10 that we read. That, the, that his opponents were seeking to establish their own righteousness, not understanding that God won't accept it because they already start out under condemnation. But even then it's mixed with, with error and falsehood and hatred and sin. But our own righteousness is inadequate and by the law no one will be justified before God is clear because God has said the righteous man will live from faith. So you see, the, the works covenant is still enforced through Adam but in particular, I think that last quote points out one of the main purposes of God republishing the law covenant of Adam in the Mosaic covenant. And it is to drive people to Christ. To, to put such a burden upon them of law to show them just how exacting God's requirement for holiness is down to the very details of life, what they can wear, where they can go, how they have to fulfill this command and that command. And it became an intolerable burden eventually that they could not fulfill and they failed. 
But you see, the law became this, uh, this burden for the people of God because they saw just how demanding God's holiness is, how thorough your holiness must be to please God. But thank the Lord, in the Mosaic Covenant, he just didn't issue this bare law and leave the people of God alone to, to fulfill their own righteousness. You see, this is why I, I emphasized earlier, and I'm sorry the young people weren't here then, but I emphasized earlier the covenant of grace still operating in this era. This, particularly this promise of Abraham being repeated. I will be your God and you will be my people. It is because I am your God, I'm committed to you. You can have hope and faith. But finally, you see, there's, there's an element of the Mosaic Covenant which operates upon Israel as a people, as a whole. And as such, it was teaching them future truths, again, showing them in, in, in a, a shadowy form what God will do. And, and Turretin actually alludes to this, and I'd like to explain it. And it is this. The Mosaic Law Code, when you look at the curses of it, when it acts like a covenant of works, the curses are all focused on the land and tenure in the land, whether the people of God as a whole, as a nation, will stay in the land or not. Now, it's just because of time, I don't have time to go through all that, but Leviticus 26, if you'd like to analyze that, or Deuteronomy 28, are two places where you have this very plainly laid out where God says, if you don't keep my covenant, you Israel as a whole, here are the curses that will fall upon you. Now they aren't eternal damnation. They're curses centering in the land of Palestine, centering on the prosperity of their families, their crops whether enemies will come into the land of Palestine or not. And eventually, the extreme curse at the very end is, I will eject you from the land. The land will have its Sabbath, and you must leave, because you pollute my land and ignore my covenant. You are lawbreakers, and you will be ejected from the Holy Land. So you see, the law covenant operates not just individually, for individuals, but also upon the church as a whole. And God was teaching them as a whole community, not even the whole community operating together, combining their efforts, can meet God's holy requirement to reverse the curse. They cannot stay in the land through their holiness because what does the history of Israel teach you? generation after generation rises up and turns away from the Lord and turns to idols. The Lord, their God, the God who claimed them and redeemed them and provided his sacrifices for them, instead they turned away from those authorized sacrifices and they put their children through the fire in the, in the end. So that eventually God said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. He says there's a day coming when this law covenant of tenure in the land for the people of God, where Palestinian location, where all the ceremonies and types and shadows are operating, there will come a day when I will make a new covenant of a different sort. And the difference of that covenant is God will put his spirit in the hearts of his people and they will obey. He guarantees it because it's the new covenant promise attended by the Holy Spirit to bring about that faith and that regeneration so that we would obey and we'd walk with all of our heart with the Lord. We'd seek that holiness without which no one will see the Lord and follow his law from our heart out of gratitude for all the gifts he's given, including eternal salvation. So the works character is seen in the fact that the corporate community, you see, has this law covenant imposed on them where the great issue is to show them that neither individually nor as a community can they fully keep God's commandments and earn their salvation. And you see, this covenant was imposed on them, but they were obligated. Twice, Exodus 9.8 and Exodus 24.7, God proposes this covenant, and it's the people that say, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Now remember what I've been saying about what makes a covenant of works a covenant of works. All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. The obligation is now on us, you see, on the people of God to do this. But again, I want to remind you that obligation was operating as a symbolic character for the whole community. The issue is not eternal life. God didn't impose that on them, though the issue was tenure in the land of Palestine to show them the extent of the holiness required by him. And there was a death sanction for failure to keep that command as a community as well as individually. It was a ministry of death because the Mosaic law was filled with curses. Deuteronomy 27, almost the whole chapter is filled with curses down to the very last where it says, Cursed is the one who does not remain in all the words written in this book of the law. There's a curse that falls upon that person. So you see, in a sense, you could, you could call the Mosaic Covenant a ministry of death and condemnation, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 3. So that eventually, God, his work, eventually finished with the people of Israel. He sends his Messiah, but the people of Israel have so perverted his covenant, sought their own righteousness, that eventually he did bring upon them the curse of that covenant. He had promised it in Hosea. He said, there will come a time when I will divorce his people. Remember the great heart of the covenant. I will be your people. And in Hosea he says, there will come a day when I will say of you, not my people. And then he will claim a new people. And praise God, that is us that is all Jew and Gentile in the new era church.
But you see, that church, Jesus pronounces this curse upon them, this prophecy of his action against them as the covenant Lord. Matthew 21, 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. He tells the Jews, I will take the kingdom of God away from you. You are sons of the covenant, sons of the prophets. You are sons of, the, of Abraham, certainly. But I'm going to take this kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to another nation. Matthew 21:43. It is interesting to see how people try to retranslate this phrase and particularly this word nation. They try to render that generation, don't they? Maybe you've heard that before in certain uh, other traditions, other theological traditions, but it can't be reinterpreted or retranslated. The word just doesn't have any other meaning. God says, I will take the kingdom of God away from the Israelite theocracy because that works covenant aspect has come to a completion and you have failed as a nation to keep my law so the termination of that covenant took place the, the promised curses that would fall upon the nations did take place and God executed his swift justice in the most horrifying form in 70 AD when the nation of Israel was overthrown its people put to the sword they were ejected from the land And you see, that was the end of that Mosaic era covenant as its theocratic form. But it doesn't mean the covenant of grace was done with. And it doesn't mean that God's law is to be thrown out the window. So we have to make those careful distinctions, some of which I've already made, so you know, if, you're, if you need reminding of that, I will. But you see, the law of God is consistent throughout all the ages. We've said that earlier. The, the moral requirements of God and the holiness required to demonstrate living faith remains the same issue. Love the Lord your God, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the rest is commentary. But you see, any other use of that law, any other use of that law, which is, is it was pointed out to me by Pastor Plantier, very rightly so, which we always want to do. <laughs> we always want to substitute our own system for God's. We always want to uh, substitute the covenant of grace with the covenant of works we want to do it. We want to take charge. We want to do something to satisfy God so that we can dictate to God the reward. For whatever reason, I really think it's the same as the original, uh, the original issue in the, in the garden where Adam said, well, you know, who's God to tell me what to do? He's probably lying anyway. It certainly is what Satan said. Blasphemous words that they are. And you see, substituting our own regulations for God's and trying to establish our own righteousness, as Paul points out in Romans 10. So the law, you see, has a number of purposes. The Mosaic Covenant has these two main elements, a continuation of the covenant of grace, administering it, we talked about that earlier, administering it in new forms, adding 
new forms to administer the covenant of grace. And yet it also had this covenant of works element operating on the people as a whole, particularly the great issue, the t- their tenure in the land. So that in the end of the day, we would see that there is no hope in ourselves. And also see that out of this, out of this great chaotic mess and curse and despair and righteousness, which is no righteousness, God says, and as he declares in, the, in Isaiah, seeing no one, I will bear my own arm and I will come down and deliver my people. So that out of Egypt, God called his son. In Hosea 11.1, 1, is that Israel? Or is that as Matthew 2.15, the Lord Jesus Christ? There is a, another element of this uh, that I want to speak to in the next section on the uh, New Covenant. Particularly, I'm going to tell you what it is, that the covenant of works expanded upon in the Mosaic Covenant, that's what Jesus fulfilled, that his obedience and righteousness would be so well defined by that law, that is what is imputed to us. It's the active obedience of Christ in fulfillment of all the Mosaic law that is imputed to us. You see, the issue theologically is seeing the, the Mosaic Covenant as embodying a works covenant element is, is to also show us and to provide the framework for Christ's active obedience, which is given to us as the second Adam fulfills the law down to the very detail for us perfectly. And this is why he had to be baptized, why he had to be circumcised on the eighth day, why he had to go through the whole mosaic ritual because his righteousness was being demonstrated and proven. But also, it had to be a works covenant because what curse did Jesus suffer under? It was the curse of the law because cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, the mosaic covenant. That is the curse he fell under, the curse of the Mosaic Covenant as a law covenant. Now, I hope you see the distinctions here. This is not church. I'm not preaching, even though I'm shouting here. (laughs) It's because I'm trying to say it clearly, and after that big meal, I'm trying to think. You know, I have to be a little intense to uh, make sure I'm saying these things clearly. And this this can be a very complicated issue. It can be really easy to mix this up and and hear me saying something... uh, that I don't intend to say. No one is saved by works in this element, in this era under Moses. But it does have a works covenant element. As long as you see that it's operating uh, typologically would be the way to describe it. It's a picture of what Christ will do. But it's also operating in other ways as well, driving people to Christ, showing the hopelessness of our own righteousness. So it has it's, it really has a number of purposes. And it's not a simple thing so that you can just claim it's one thing or the other. And I think that's what the quote from Turin I intended to communicate. He just says it quite well. He shows that you really have to look at it from different aspects. And by the way, the quote from Turin is represented, representative of a number of other of our covenant theologians. 
But not everyone has described it this way. To be fair, there are some people that have felt uneasy with this description. And I, I presented it to you as at least uh, in, in one of our strains, it is, I think it is the, uh, in my opinion, it's the best way to describe it at this point. Do you have any questions now? Yes. Moses. Oh, sorry. Moses, will you now speak? There were baptismal requirements attending some of the festivals, I believe. But it was, it was not required by Moses and, and the Mosaic Law Code. That, that came up later. That was, and it was the baptism of John the Baptist, of course, that he underwent. So I, I probably misspoke by alluding to baptism. To fulfill all righteousness. Well, well, well. That that baptism was a baptism of repentance, to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers, etc. And it was a baptism to bring about repentance, in anticipation of the coming of the Savior, that people would return to the Lord, away from idols, return to the Lord, in preparation for His coming. Now, why would it be to fulfill all righteousness? In my opinion, and I, I'd want to think about this more, I haven't thought about it a lot, but I've thought that he underwent that because he would undergo the, the punishment for us as sinners, even though he personally did not sin. The scripture says that Christ became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he became sin. Therefore, he, ha- he became the, re- the, uh, the one who needed a baptism re- of repentance by representation, but not personally. So it was right for him to do that because he came to represent us in that aspect. John the Baptist, yeah, I don't think so because John the Baptist's baptism is what he underwent and that was a baptism of repentance. I don't think so. Right now. I think, yeah, the question is, was Jesus baptized as a, under, as a priestly baptism for the Levitical priesthood? I don't think so. I think the uh, baptism that Jesus underwent was a baptism for repentance. Even though he didn't need it personally, it was because he came to represent us that he underwent it. For a priest, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, the problem I have is that is that not, not why John was baptizing and that's the baptism that Jesus underwent. That's all. I don't think John was carrying, conducting baptisms of all sorts. He had a specific ministry and Jesus underwent that kind of baptism. 
but I'll I'll think about it more. I mean, I I, I haven't thought about that one in great length. Any other questions? Oh, it's nice to just say things so clearly that everybody just goes away, you know, no questions, wonderful uh, understanding. Either that or you all ate too much and you are really thinking about packing tomorrow and when, I, when we're going to get the kids in the car too with all that stuff we have. And that's what I'm thinking about. We came with two suitcases on top and now we're going to have two suitcases and two kids on top. You know, I'm figuring out how to tie Isaac down. I mean, you know, he wiggles so much, and the hole's still there. But I'm actually thinking about whether to use a bungee cord or just a rope. You know, I'll figure that out. Okay. Well, there is a question and answer time tomorrow, Lord willing. Maybe we'll make it real quick so you can get out of here to pack your cars. I don't know. Depends on you. It uh, really depends on how much you want to uh, ask questions. But I'm ready for the new covenant. I don't know about you. <laughs> Let's go to the new covenant in 15 minutes. Well, Jesus came and fulfilled it all. That was that was quicker than 15 minutes. I'd read like to read the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism. I'm reading this in part to introduce you to it, but also to show you how integral covenant theology is with our theology. With whom was the covenant of grace made? This is question and answer 31, larger catechism. The covenant of grace was made with Christ as his second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. Now you know what second Adam means the one who represents us. In him, he represents us. And the covenant is made with us in him. How is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? The grace of God is manifested in the second covenant in that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by him and requiring faith as a condition to interest them in him promiseth and giveth his Holy Spirit to all his elect to work in them that faith with all other saving graces and to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God and as the way which he hath appointed them to salvation. Notice how God not only gives faith but also obedience, working that in us, working that which is well-pleasing in his sight, as Hebrews says, so that Christ, through his Spirit, works in us, not only faith, but this holy obedience so that we can obey now God's requirements, but not that we might attain God's grace, but only because we've already received it. And in thankfulness to God, that's our motive. Now number 33. Was the covenant of grace always administered after one and the same manner? The covenant of grace was not always administered after the same manner, but the administrations of it under the Old Testament were different from those under the New. How was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? The covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances 
which did all four signify Christ then to come and were for that time sufficient to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they then had full remission of sin and eternal salvation. How is the covenant of grace administered under the New Testament? Under the New Testament, substance was exhibited. The same covenant of grace was and still is to be administered in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy to all the nations. Notice what a wonderful gospel that is, and how in Christ, all these types and shadows which became a burden to the people of God, I mean, just think about one aspect of that. We couldn't really worship God here in all the full kind of worship under Moses required. Why not? Well, we would be appointed to go to Jerusalem to sacrifice in the temple. You can't worship just anywhere. You know the interesting thing about that woman at the well in Samaria in John 4? Is that the Samaritan worship was just like the Jewish as far as we can tell. The only difference is that they worship with a different priesthood and in Samaria. They had their own temple. But as far as the form of worship, it was the same as the Old Testament because they used the Old Testament worship. And yet Jesus says, you worship a God you don't know. And part of that is because they don't know that God requires them to worship in Jerusalem, but also other reasons through the Levitical priesthood and not elsewhere. But then Jesus, of course, peeks open the new covenant era and says the time is coming and now is when they will worship not only in this mountain but all around the globe which is what we are doing praise the Lord but you see that's the kind of uh, wonderful uh, simplicity now we understand in the new covenant worship but notice in in this confession how it's the same covenant of grace being fulfilled in the New Testament. Now, I just want to call to your mind how in uh, Galatians 3, which we worked over pretty carefully, that the pre-preaching of the gospel to Abraham focused on the Gentiles coming in to the Abrahamic blessing. Notice the continuity there. Abraham receives the preliminary preaching of the gospel which looked forward to the day of fulfillment. Yet it was the same gospel. It was a gospel of justification by faith so that when Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, that's the same righteousness that we look for, the the righteousness of faith. And so the new covenant is involved with the same kind of uh, central core substantive issue, righteousness of faith provided for us as a free gift by our mediator, And you see that mediator is called in Hebrews 7.22 our guarantor. In Hebrews 7.22 the writer says that Jesus is the guarantor of the new covenant. We've talked about how the covenant of grace focuses on substitution. But now we see that that substitute, that mediator of the covenant is the one who guarantees the covenant. Now, in that culture, it's similar to ours. If you take out a loan, you may have a co-signer. 
and a co-signer is the one who guarantees that you will pay the loan, guarantees to the bank that you will pay the loan. Because if you don't, the guarantor will pay the loan. Now they had that back then in the day of Hebrews when he wrote that. And that's one of the uses of that word and I think that's what he means there. The other use is very similar. Someone who guarantees that the transaction will be fulfilled. You see, Jesus guaranteed that the covenant of works would be fully fulfilled. That the personal and perfect obedience that God requires of us, he would provide. And isn't this the heart of the gospel? Now you can see that covenant theology is really vitally concerned with the heart of the gospel. Justification by faith. And righteousness imputed to us as the righteousness of Christ given to us as a free gift received by faith. And it's his righteousness. And the thing that I think we, uh, we focus on rightly, it's his act of obedience. And I mentioned this earlier, but just to underline again, it's an obedience where he obeyed all the demands of God, the ones that were fully and explicitly and at length written out in the Mosaic law. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled that specific law. And then as it pleased God, he himself was made to be sin so that God on the cross saw only you in your sins. All of his elect, you see. All of his people. So that on the cross, that righteous one who did not deserve this cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That covenant label, my God. I have followed you all my days. Why have you forsaken me? Now the mystery of that I won't explore. Who can? How could he cry out this unless he was under God's terrible and awful wrath? which is what he suffered for us. And you see, this is where the great covenant exchange took place. So that then, because God was our God, he gave his son. So that those great covenant promises might now be fulfilled. And then we read this. After the resurrection of Christ, after that price was paid and God vindicated his son and vindicated his own name and raised his son from the dead in new life as first fruits of a great harvest of us as well, here's what we read with that same formula. John 20, verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So you see, this covenant exchange has taken place, so that is now true. Now you see this, this wonderful thing we call the formula has been fulfilled, so that all over the place in the New Testament, you get a transition, gradually, but very steadily you get a transition, so that from now on we hear about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier we'd heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but now the great covenant person who
who is the center of our new covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is his God as he is a man representing us as well as the Son of God, fully divine. You see, I used to be troubled over that, that verse in John 20. Isn't Jesus the Son of God? How can he say, my God? I'm going to my God. But now I understand it. It's that covenant language. As the true man, remember his incarnation is real. Jesus truly became man that he might truly represent us on the cross and redeem us. Is now also claiming God as his God, the one who raised him from the dead, so that God will now be our God. So we hear that all the time. So the new covenant has new sacraments, a new form which is much simpler and easier for us to endure. We have commandments where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments where the law of Christ bears upon us, and it's not in substance different from the law from Adam through Abraham and Moses through today. We call that the moral law. It's the same throughout all eras. God's holiness doesn't change, nor does his most holy demand summarize in the same way. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments still still as our guide of life, how we can uh, serve the Lord in gratitude. All these things uh, now fit into place more clearly. We have the blood of the new covenant in our sacrament. We'll talk about that some tomorrow. And we have as well the guarantee that this covenant won't have any more transition. You see, the new covenant marks the end of God's changing the covenant administrations because it's, all the rest has been fulfilled. You have to see that everything that's gone before is preparation for what we have now. We live in the great era of fulfillment. And this is why the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And if you don't believe that, prove to me that you are more holy than John the Baptist by going out there and eating a cricket. <laughs> the guy ate grasshoppers and honey as a sign of his holiness. This is a man of faith who put his money where his mouth was or <laughs> put his grasshoppers where his... You see, it wasn't John's holiness which was in question in Jesus' statement there. That wasn't the point. It wasn't the extent of John's faith. He was a great man of faith. He was the greatest prophet. And yet, you see, he lived in the different administration of the covenant of grace. And we live in the time of greater fulfillment, greater privilege, greater clarity of God's revelation, greater grace. And of whom much is given, much will be required. Listen to the great prophecy of our day when Jeremiah, remember who Jeremiah was, the guy who was thrown into a cistern, a dry hole in the ground by his enemies. 
Here's what Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, prophesied. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There is the reiteration of the great covenant promise. But notice the guarantee there. He guarantees that this covenant will take effect in the hearts and lives of people so that we will walk in his ways and will in gratitude demonstrate that fruit of the Spirit because he also gives us that down payment of the Spirit or as we read in Galatians 3 also that promise of the Spirit, that promise of the covenant so that we will be his people with living faith following in his ways and then he will say to us at the end of our days, come into the joy prepared by your Father. I am your God and you are my Son. Well, we'll read more about that tomorrow. And I know some kids that are eager to go play some board games. But I'll take one question. Time's up. Okay. <laughs> well, we will have a question and answer tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to zip through the sacraments real quickly. Uh, much more quickly than I intended Um, but we ran a little longer on this one section and then we'll have some uh, Q&A and throw the kids in the car and race down the hill so (laughs) let's let's close our evening with prayer O Lord these are great precious and beautiful truths to us These are beautiful truths, O Lord, because you have given us the insight into them. We haven't seen Christ, but you've given us a word that we find powerful because you attend it and your spirit is moved in our hearts. I do pray, O Lord, in particular for these dear children of the covenant who are before us this evening, that you will grant that they would rise up as a new generation, strong in the Lord, nourished on this good gospel who learn holiness at an early age who will be bold in witness and stand fast in the day of trouble and grant that they may be a bold witness for this most holy faith that we, their parents, hold dear grant that it will be precious to them as well as you are precious oh grant, O Lord claim them as your children Grant these covenant blessings to them as well, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.